Good morning, fellowship. How are you? This, this service is more full than the other ones I've seen this weekend. Even on the end of spring break. Well, congrats on uh, getting to church on a Sunday morning. Um, for those of you who may not have made it here to church last weekend, there is a good message, a really good message that was uh, brought by Michael Easley. Um, in Mark chapter 10, where we are at our text, Jesus was teaching on uh, marriage and divorce. And uh, I, I normally stood up here at the 8 o'clock service, and a whole bunch of us kind of got together after last week's message, and we're commenting on just how profoundly insightful the message was last weekend. So if you missed it because you're away on spring break or what have you, uh, please download that resource from the website. It was phenomenal. Well, we're going to continue on in uh, Mark chapter 10, so if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open up to that uh, area of the text. Where we finished off last week in Mark chapter 10, after Jesus had finished teaching on marriage and divorce, uh, we see that the disciples uh, were intervening on Jesus' behalf uh, because there were some parents that had made the decision to bring their small children up to Jesus. And the disciples took issue with this. Um, I think it was James Dobson who had said that children are an appetite surrounded by noise. And I think that's uh, a very insightful summary of small children. In fact, I think the disciples would have amended this conclusion because I think that's why they wanted the kids removed. Uh, Jesus, these little ankle biters, they've got nothing to offer our ministry here, man. They... They just, there's no money, there's no skill, there's no influence, there's no nothing. These the guys are just take, take, take. They're just really, Jesus, they're a distraction. Let's call it what it is. Let's get them out of here. And Jesus, when he acknowledges the situation, uh, he doesn't affirm the disciples' action. He actually rebukes the disciples' actions. And he says, do not hinder the little children from coming to me. He says, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And he makes a profound statement after that. In your Bible, it's verse 15 in Mark chapter 10. He says, Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will not enter it. I'm going to read that again. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will not enter it. What does he mean by that? Well, I want those words to weigh in your mind for a moment, because the next person onto the scene is an individual whose entrance the disciples will not hinder. He's called the rich young ruler. All three synoptic gospels carry this story. In Mark, we learn that he's wealthy. You've got to turn to the account in Matthew, Matthew chapter 19, to discover that he's young, and only the account in Luke adds the detail that this guy's a ruler. He's the rich young ruler. And this guy's a success story, right? If we were to update the story into today's terms, we'd say this guy wears tailored suits, right? He's got Italian shoes on his feet. He's got American Express black in his wallet, right? And when this guy hears that Jesus is in town, he comes running, literally. And although life has been really good for this guy so far, he's achieved quite a modicum of success, he's got a question on his mind, and he feels that Jesus is the one who can answer this question for him. We'll pick it up in verse 17 of Mark chapter 10, and it says this, 
As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Please know that this guy doesn't come walking up to Jesus. He comes running. It denotes a tone of urgency. He doesn't get up to Jesus and stand nose to nose and toe to toe with Jesus in a posture of debate as the Pharisees have so often done in Jesus' ministry. No, this guy comes and puts himself in front of Jesus' feet kneeling in a, in a posture of humility and a demonstration of respect. Now, he comes rather assertively. He, he gets right in front of Jesus. Uh, he's kind of a no-nonsense, uh, bottom-line kind of guy. There, there's no time for, for chit-chat. There's no time for icebreaker questions, no introductions, you know, no casual conversation. This guy gets right to the point. Jesus, you're, you're a busy man. So am I. So let me ask you what's on my mind. And the question he asked Jesus is really the, que- the great question of the ages. What must I do to inherit eternal life? You see, this guy has climbed the mountain of success. He feels he's almost at the top. He's accumulated some money. He's got wealth. He's got possessions. He's got property. He's got comforts and conveniences. Right? Life's been pretty good to this guy. He's, you might say he's achieved the American dream. And he's done so as a young man all the more impressive. And while he is almost at the summit of Mount Success, he's very conscious that he's not at the top. There's something that's preventing him from getting to the apex, from getting to the very top. He, he knows he's got to climb over this last step because there's a piece missing from the success puzzle. And he's keenly aware of this. So he asked Jesus for guidance. What must I do to obtain eternal life? The question, the way that it's been worded, it's suggestive of his thought process. What must I do to obtain eternal life? You see, I think this rich young ruler believes that he can uh, acquire eternal life the way that he's acquired everything else in his life, by his own strength. And he's of the mind frame, as are many people in this world, that if you just pile up enough good deeds on this side of the scale to offset your bad deeds on this side of the scale, that the scale will tilt in your favor. And so he asked Jesus, hey, what's my break-even point here? How much weight do I have to put on the scale before it favors me? How much do I have to invest before I can be sure of my eternal return? Well, Jesus is going to answer him. Verse 18, Jesus says to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And the rich young ruler replies, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. So Jesus takes the conversation in an interesting direction. Jesus first acknowledges the fact that nobody is good except God alone. Only God himself is good. And this guy's calling Jesus a good teacher. So Jesus is veering the conversation this way. And then Jesus begins to number, one after the other after the other, uh, a handful of the Ten Commandments. 
It's interesting that Jesus focuses on the back half of the Decalogue. He's looking at the commandments that would address how we are to relate to each other as neighbors. He doesn't focus on the commandments that talk about how we are to relate to God. It's how we are to relate to our neighbor. And he begins to list these things. Honor your father and mother. Do not bear false witness. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. As Jesus is listing off these commandments, this guy's like, yep, uh uh-huh, yep, got it, check, done that, yep. And you can almost see the rich young ruler kind of putting his fingers on his belt going, what else you got, Jesus? You got any more commandments you want to run past me? Right? This guy feels like he's satisfied the checklist. And I don't know if this guy's arrogant or if he's just got a complete detachment from reality. What I know for sure is I don't relate to this guy at all. Honor your father and mother. Hmm. You mean to say that you've never received a harsh word from mom and dad? You've never received an earned rebuke from your parents? You've never been grounded? You've never had your bottom tan from mom and dad, ever? Really? Boy, did this guy have a different childhood than I had. I received more spankings from my parents than I can remember and count And it's not because my parents were cruel or abusive. I assure you, every one of these was well-earned. And I was reflecting this morning as I was talking about this uh, with the first service, I only got spanked for the offenses for which I got caught. My rap sheet is pretty long. This guy claims he's never lied. Wow! How many of you remember the first time you lied? Exactly. You know why you don't remember the first time you lied? It's because you've been lying since you've been breathing. (laughs) Trust me on this. You weren't 13 years old when the thought crossed your mind, hmm, I wonder if I should come completely clean about this. You weren't 13 years old when that happened. You know how old you were? You were like eight months old when that thought first crossed your mind. And you're laughing if you're the parent of small children. Okay? (laughs) I've been through this. How many of you as parents, my wife was here in the first service and she and I had some moments like this. How many of you as parents, as parents of small children, had that memory of of a time when, okay, I've got two little kids and they're both under the age of this. Okay, they're both small. And I'm about to lose my sanity because I don't have a moment's peace to myself and they're taking everything out of me, right? These little ankle biters. And you realize, whoa, I've got a moment of opportunity. He's playing well, he's playing well. I'm going to go take a shower. You've got this five-minute window. We say, okay, there's no sharp objects. Nobody's going to die. And you very quietly remove yourself from the equation. You go upstairs and take a shower. And then you come back down from your shower, still a little bit wet, but hey, you got clean. You had your moment. And you come back and you find this on the floor in your living room. (laughs) And you look at it and you say, what happened here? The, 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 the dialogue, the interrogation goes something like this. Who did this? And you get one of two answers if you're a parent of two children. The first answer is this. Who did this? Right? The second answer you can get is three infamous words strung together that you didn't have to teach your children, but they automatically know. Who did this? I don't know. <laughs> really? You don't know. You mean to tell me that either I, in some dissociative way, while I was showering, did this, or perhaps your mom did, 
Is that what you want me to believe? I don't know. Really? We're going to stick with I don't know on this one. Okay. You guys, we're all liars. We are all cheaters. We've all dishonored our mother and our father, and it started at a very young age for us. Uh, I remember the time when my oldest daughter lied to me for the first time. She wasn't 12 when this happened. She was still in diapers, and she made me promise to not tell the whole story. But I looked her in the eye, and I asked her a point-blank question, and she lied to my face. And I thought to myself, wow, innocence gone. I didn't teach her to lie. It came out of here. It was there. It's part of our depraved nature that we inherited from Adam. It's the way we're put together. Now, part of me can relate to the rich young ruler in a way. You see, Jesus says, hey, have you murdered anybody? I know my answer to that question. No, I've not murdered anybody. All right. Have you committed adultery? been married for 15 years. I've never cheated on my wife, right? So I get, a, I get the idea that you can go through the Ten Commandments in a, in a sense, and you can give yourself a passing grade on some of these things. But that is until Jesus elaborates on the depth of the meaning of the Ten Commandments. You see, as you look at the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, Matthew 6, when it says, do not commit adultery, it doesn't mean just don't cheat sexually on your wife. It means don't look elsewhere. And when it says, do not murder, it means don't raise your voice in anger. You see, following the law fully is not just to govern and, and uh, observe the outward external expressions of the law. The law also measures your heart. And so we are all guilty. This rich young ruler should have said, I've tried to follow your commandments, but I can't. I fall short, and I know that I need help. God is holy. I am not. Please help me. He should have responded the way that Peter responded. When Jesus, at the edge of the Sea of Galilee, called Peter to call him, Peter said, Away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Peter had a high level of self-awareness. The rich young ruler does not. In fact, it might be said that the rich young ruler doesn't truly grasp the reality of his condition. Uh, you could say that the rich young ruler is suffering from olfactory fatigue. Now you might be saying, what is he talking about? I had a flashback to my time in college as I was preparing my message notes for today. Uh, I did a bachelor's degree in physical education. Why? Because I was not good at anything in school except for gym class. All right, I was lousy in English I couldn't pass math. I was afraid of the sciences. But man, you put a basketball in my hand or a volleyball. I nailed it, baby. Like I, I, I crushed gym class every year. Best part of my high school transcript. Some of you are nodding, right? You get this. So my mom, in a moment of you know, candid, uh, let's, let's just call this what it is, she said, okay, you'll never be wealthy. She said, but why don't you go and get a bachelor's degree in physical education? At least you'll get to do sports your whole life. I thought, good idea. So I had a, it's not every day I get to use my phys ed degree, but today's the day. I remember from a class at the at University of Calgary where I was doing my phys ed degree, there's a class on backpacking. I think it was like backpacking 201, some really rigorous academia in this class. 
And I remember learning about a phenomenon called olfactory fatigue. How many of you have ever heard of olfactory fatigue? All right, so the phys ed major is going to bring the, the knowledge today, okay? Here we go. <laughs> olfactory fatigue is what happens when you've been backpacking or hiking for like a week or 10 days without access to showering facilities. And, you know, you're out in the nature having a good time. You've been packing your tent and your food, and you're a little hot, you're a little sweaty, but that's okay. You know, we're, all, we're all together on this. But after the seven or ten day sojourn, you have to come back to reality. You've got to come back to civilization. And usually that involves getting on a bus or getting on a train. And you take your seat on the bus and you sit down, and it's a fairly crowded bus. And after you sit down and you, know, you kind of relax and start, you know, getting settled in for the trip back to civilization, you look around like 10 minutes later and you realize the bus where you're sitting is not as crowded as it was when you first sat down. What's going on here? Well, you come to realize that your senses have become deadened to the reality of your own stench. You can no longer accurately perceive how you smell. They call that olfactory fatigue. And guys, in a sense, that is what the rich young ruler is suffering from. He can no longer accurately perceive how he smells spiritually. And Jesus is going to address this with him. So look at verse 21. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. The detail that I want you to not skip over is the fact that Jesus looked at this guy in love. Mark is the only synoptic, synoptic author to put in that little detail. It's with loving eyes and a loving heart that Jesus confronts this guy. But he tells him to sell all his stuff and give it to the poor. This requirement from Jesus is drastic. Uh, it does not go too far to say that this requirement is unprecedented. There is no context for this anywhere else in the Bible. There's no parallel of this encounter anywhere in Scripture. Uh, the way that Jesus is dealing with this dude, it's highly unusual, guys. One commentator that I read when looking at this passage suggested that the way that Jesus is dealing with this guy would be akin to someone performing an intervention on behalf of like an alcoholic or a serial gambler where you have to physically step in and perform the cold turkey method of breaking the destructive pattern of behavior because only a complete and total overthrow of the destructive behavior will actually kill it. That's what's going on in this situation. Why does Jesus decide he needs to do this? Why does he take this tack? Why does he ask this guy to divest himself of all of his riches? Well, Jesus knew that this young man loved his wealth more than he loved God. Jesus could see that this guy's material possessions basically occupied the place of God in this man's life. And that because of this reality, this rich young ruler, he was actually living in transgression, in perpetual transgression of the very first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. So what's going to happen? The world has kind of stopped for this young ruler. He's on his knees before Jesus. He's asked the question of the ages. He's awaited his response, and now he's gotten it from the master. But I don't think it's the answer he was looking for. And with Jesus' loving eyes 
steadily affixed on this young man, what's he going to do? Well, the Bible graphically tells us in Mark's account, verse 22, it says, but at this the man's face fell and he went away sad. The NIV says he went away grieving because he had great wealth. The rich young ruler was unwilling to fulfill the unconditional terms of surrender that Jesus put forth. Now you might recall this whole teaching moment for the disciples began back in verse 15. Anyone who will not enter the kingdom of God like a little child will not enter it. And here's a man who felt he could enter the kingdom of God standing on two proud feet. And he gets up off of his knees and I picture him slowly walking away, probably avoiding eye contact with Jesus as he does so and slowly wandering off into the distance. I kind of picture Jesus observing the slow departure of this rich young man. And then he captures the teachable moment for his disciples because they're still learning. They're still trying to put this together. And in verse 23, this is what Jesus says. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus answers again and says to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Well, they were even more astonished at this and said to him, Well, then who can be saved? Guys, this exchange between Jesus and the disciples is turning a first century paradigm on its ear. You see, the the disciples were suffering from what might be considered to be a first century form of prosperity theology. It's the idea that material abundance in this world was evidence of your good standing before God. All that stuff you've got, all your possessions, all your wealth, all your belongings, the reason you've got those is because God has highly favored you. God has approved of you. That's why you've got all your stuff. This was a common belief in the first century. And Jesus takes this paradigm, takes this belief, and he shatters it right before the disciples. And he uses a really funny illustration to demonstrate the the, the reality of this. He says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. What does that look like? You ever thought about what, what that looks like? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, good idea. Let's take the largest animal in Palestine and let's try to put him through the tip. Yeah, that's not going to work. Clearly, this is a humorous illustration of an impossibility. What does he mean by this? Jesus is pretty hard on this guy and he comes out swinging talking about how hard it is for the wealthy to be saved. Let's talk about this for a second because this passage is at risk of poor interpretation. Uh, I want to talk for a moment about what Jesus is saying with this and what I feel like he's not saying with this. Okay, first of all, is money good or is money bad? Is it inherently good or is it inherently evil? What's the answer? What is it? Neither. Okay, 1 Timothy 6.10 does not say, for money is the root of all kinds of evil. What does it say? 
Money is, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. This is value neutral. It's not neither good, it's not bad. It is a necessity. It is something that all of us need. Okay? Some of you are going out to Cracker Barrel from here. You're going to have you a hearty breakfast at the Greasy Spoon. And after your breakfast is over, your server is going to bring you a bill. Okay? And the bill is going to tell you how much you owe for your dining experience at Cracker Barrel this morning. And you can offer, if you like, to try to offer, you know, provide payment in kind for your invoice. Uh, maybe you decide to not use some form of currency, some form of payment. Maybe you would decide to offer your server a song, a spirited, rousing song. You maybe even have your family do like a four-part harmony, and you do a really rousing rendition of a cool song. Maybe even the Cracker Barrel theme song. Maybe they'll take that as a form of payment, right? Maybe you can try to do your best dance move you just learned the other day and give that as a form of payment. Let's see how that goes. Seriously. I think some of you should try this. We'll, we'll create a spot on the fellowship website. We'll call this Applied Learning from Sunday Morning or something like that. Take a little video of you trying to offer some form of payment other than cash or plastic and see how it goes. It's not going to go well, I don't think. But I still would love to see the video if you're willing to try it. I'm totally serious about that. No, guys, money is not evil. It's the love of money that leads us into all kinds of evil. And while we recognize that the Bible has numerous wealthy people that are put forth as godly examples for us, there are people in the Bible that had a lot of money, a lot of possessions. People like Abraham and Boaz uh, and Job. These are people of great wealth, godly examples for us to follow. But we have to acknowledge that the vast majority of instruction in this book on the subject of money, and there's a lot of it, is mostly constituted of warnings. So there's something that we've got to take to heart here. And I could probably put several dozen verses up on the screen for us to work through one by one. Our condensed time this morning doesn't allow us to do that, but I do want to look at one passage from your Old Testament. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 8. And in this passage, what we see is that the Hebrews are being have been rescued from the land of slavery. They've been in Egypt for 400 years. They've been under the foot of the Pharaoh, suffering. It's been hard. They have been traumatized by 400 years of slavery, crying out to God for provision, for rescue. And God has finally responded through the hand of a guy named Moses. Moses rescues the Hebrews from Egypt. He takes them out into the wilderness where they wander for 40 years, and things are about to get really good for them. They're about to enter the promised land, the land of milk and honey. But God offers the Hebrews a warning before they get there. Deuteronomy 8, starting in chapter 12, or chapter 12, verse, chapter 8, verse 12, starts this way. When you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, when your herds and your flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all that you have is multiplied. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Sounds like the rich young ruler, doesn't it? Well, then God continues, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Hebrews, things are about to get really good for you. 
goodness like you have never known in your lives and in many, many generations. I'm about to bless you abundantly. Fine houses, growing herds, crops, silver and gold. I'm going to bless you with it. And you know what's going to happen? You're going to become proud. You're going to become arrogant. And you're going to forget about me. Why did he have to warn them? Why did he have to warn them? We all want fine houses, fellowship. We all want our silver and our gold to increase. We want our 401k to multiply, don't we? But we have to acknowledge that as our material possessions, as all the things that we gather in a mass grows like this, our dependence on God tends to go like this. I don't know if that's true in your life, but it's been true in mine. I'm not proud of that, but it's a reality. And I think that's exactly what God was saying to the Hebrews when he rescued them from the land of Egypt. Guys, I call this the bankruptcy of riches. Well, when Jesus sees this rich young ruler, he sees this going on in this guy's life. And he looks him in the eye masterfully. Jesus, Jesus parts through all the pretense he gets past all this guy's posturing. He looks through the smokescreen and he sees this guy's heart and he begins to read this young fellow like a book. And he says to him, I see the real cancer going on. I see what's at work here in you. You have to get rid of all your money. He says, I know this is going to hurt you. I know this is going to be lousy, but I see the root problem. He says, you need to lay it down. Let's take care of this together. Guys, it's with love in his eyes when he says this. Jesus doesn't have any spite on his heart. He's not arrogant. He's not slanderous. He's not saying to his disciples, ha, watch this one, guys. No, it's with love in his heart that he tells this guy, I see exactly what's going on. Let's deal with this. He does this guy a great service by identifying for him the cancer that's at work in his soul. But rather than acknowledge what the doctor has prescribed, he decides to continue on with his ailment and get up and to walk away. I've got a question for us this morning. You see, when I was preparing this message, I was reading through this, and you know, I was kind of going, yeah, I can see how the ultra-wealthy would struggle with independence. I can see how they'd want to you know, be self-reliant and you know, a little bit destructive that way, you know, reducing their dependence on God. I can see how the ultra-wealthy would struggle with that, you know, with that proud spirit. But the more I thought about this, I realized it's not the ultra-wealthy alone that struggle with prideful independence. I think the educated struggle with this. I think the good-looking struggle with this. I think the popular struggle with this. I think the strong struggle with this. I think the musically talented struggle with this. And as was true in Jesus' day, I think the religious struggle with this. Guys, I'm in a room full of capable, strong, proud, good-looking, some of you. <laughs> Capable people. And I need to ask you, 
If Jesus did you the great service of getting in your space, getting eyeball to eyeball with you and reading your soul like a book, what would he identify in your life that's hindering you from spiritual freedom? You see, we hold on to the things of this world so tightly that it binds us to the earth and it focuses us on the here and the now rather than focusing on our God in heaven. What Jesus was trying to do was not reach into this guy's pocket and take away his money. He was trying to have this guy open up his hands so that he could reach for his heavenly Father and hold on to God with two hands. But he was unwilling to do that. If Jesus was to ask you today, what is it that you need to have your fingers pried open from? What would he identify in your life? What's that thing, fellowship, that you're holding on to so tightly that if God asked you to release it, you would absolutely cringe. You see, Jesus did this guy a favor by addressing this with him. And I think in a room full of people that resemble the rich young ruler, probably a lot more than we would care to admit, I think we need to be introspective about this this morning and ask the same question, what are we holding on to too tightly today? Well, let me get back to our text. This discussion went down the road of who can be saved? If the rich guy is out, then who's in? Was the question. Well, Jesus is going to answer that for the disciples. Verse 27. Looking at them, Jesus said, With people, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Interesting now that Jesus has moved from picking on the rich guy to picking on people. Who can be saved? With people, it's impossible. He doesn't say with people, it's improbable. He doesn't say that with people, it's unlikely. It's going to take a lot of hard work. No, he says with people, it's impossible. Guys, unless somebody does for you what you cannot do for yourself, I'm sorry, you don't have a chance at heaven. It's out of your grasp. And that doesn't sit well with us. In America, we don't believe in the idea that anything other than hard work will get us to where we want to be, right? Our job is to buck up, put in our time, you know, do what we need to do, and we'll get the results we're looking for, right? If you want to get good grades in school, a concept I've never really accomplished, you got to do your studies. you got to do your homework, and you'll get good grades. You want a promotion at work? you got to do the work. you got to get the result. You want to lose the weight? you got to do your exercise. And stick to your diet. Do, do, do. It's the formula for success in our culture. You put in your time, you put in your hard work, you pay your dues, pardon the pun, and your account will be credited. That's the way we think about things, isn't it? And it's this mentality that caused the rich young ruler to think that he was just a payment away from getting what he wanted. But Jesus looks at this and says, it's not how it works. There's nothing you can do, my friends, to merit salvation. It's out of your grasp. It's impossible. You know why? Because it costs far more than you can pay. Salvation, guys, is only attainable. To be able to stand in the presence of a holy God is only attainable if you have attained moral perfection. God is holy and righteous And we are not. 
We can think that our best efforts, that the best works we can do, that if I just put my best foot forward, that we can stand before a holy God. But Isaiah 64, 6 says that even our righteous acts are like filthy rags before God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is nothing we can do to merit favor before God and to earn our salvation. You guys, if we have any shot at heaven, it is this and this alone. We cannot do it for ourselves. We can only trust in the one who has done it on our behalf. All the religions of the world spell salvation with two letters, D-O. Do this, do that, do this, do this, and maybe God will approve of you. Jesus says, "Uh uh-uh, it doesn't work that way. He says, there's nothing you can do to stand in favor before my heavenly Father. You can only trust what I have done on your behalf. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no man can boast. Well, let's, uh, let's wind down our time here. There's one last small section of text that I want to acknowledge, and then we'll get out of here. Uh, verses 28 through 31, we see a really cool Peterism in your Bible. Uh, Peter is the guy in, in your uh, New Testament who seems to always be saying what everyone else is thinking. And sometimes when he opens up his mouth, it's good for some entertainment value. Uh, in my Bible, my translation reads, Peter at the Mount of Transfiguration. This is a good one. Uh, it says, Peter, having nothing to say, said. <laughs> I like that. I like that. So Peter is going to address the situation now, and he's going to say this in verse 28. Peter began to say to him, to Jesus, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. Translation. Jesus, we weren't commanded to leave our stuff. We did so voluntarily. Jesus, we're kind of all in on this discipleship thing. I left my family. I left my wife. I left my kids. What's going to be in it for us? Well, Jesus is going to answer him. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Guys, I like Jesus' math on this. He doesn't say that you'll get 100% reward. He says you'll get 100 times reward for that which you have invested and that which you have lost. Yeah, you know what? Everyone in your world may not approve of your Christian faith. There may be a door that closes on you because of it. Jesus says there'll be 100 doors that'll open. And you might lose one brother in the flesh because of your commitment to Christ. But Jesus says you'll gain a thousand brothers in the Spirit. Jesus is clear, guys. It's not going to be all Girl Scout cookies in this thing. He's very clear. There will be persecutions on this journey. But he promises that it will be worth it. Now, at the end of our message time, we're in the habit of typically asking the question, so what? I don't want to ask so what this morning. I want to ask the question, what if? You see, I don't like the way this story ends. I'm bothered by it. Here's a guy with so much talent, so much ability, so much strength, 
and apparently goodness. He feels he's a moral guy. We don't have any reason to believe he wasn't a moral, upright guy. But Jesus gave him the answer to his question, and he walked away unwilling to pay the price. Price was too high. I'm not willing to pay. What does the rest of this guy's life look like? Having gotten the answer to his question and walked away with his tail between his legs. Makes me ask the question, what could the rest of his life have have looked like had he answered in the affirmative? You see, in the Old Testament, we see a kind of similar story. God approaches a fellow named Abraham who's been trying with his wife Sarah for a hundred years to have a child, and they've been unsuccessful. Finally, they have a baby, and his name is Isaac. And Isaac grows to be a young lad. And God says to Abraham, offer up your son. This young boy was everything to Abraham, everything to him. God says, offer him up. The Bible tells us not only that Abraham was willing to do it, he was willing to perform the ultimate sacrifice as God had requested. But we see that that willingness to do so, that God stayed his hand and said, stop, do not lay a hand on the boy. And then after that, God blesses him. Not only can you keep your son, Isaac, not only do you keep him, but Abraham, because you are willing to put me first, because you didn't hold on to your son so tightly, but you were willing to release him to me, because you chose that, I will bless you abundantly. Your descendants will number more than the stars in the sky, more than the sands on the seashore. In fact, I am going to bless your descendants. All the nations of the world will be blessed because of you and through your son. Guys, when God tells us to lay down the stuff we're holding on to, he's not trying to put his hand in our pockets. He's not trying to get our stuff. He's trying to make sure that he's got our heart. (laughs) And some of us are unwilling to pry open our fingers because we're worried that if we actually give back to God what's rightly his anyways, we're worried that God's going to mess with us. He's going to make our life uncomfortable and inconvenient. But guys, that's the path to the life of abundance. That's the path to freedom spiritually. And man, I want to know what would have happened to this guy had he made the right decision. What could this guy have done on the Lord's behalf and through the Lord's will had he made the right call? I'm not convinced this guy would have been a pauper. In the way that the Lord blessed Abraham, I bet the Lord would have given back this guy his money and many times more, and this guy would have seen his money blessed thousands and thousands of people had he given control of his stuff back to God. But he doesn't do that. Guys, we hinder ourselves because we are unwilling to trust God fully with our stuff. It's not our stuff. It's His. Some of you may need to do business with God today. What are you holding on to a little too tightly? In a prayerful spirit of introspection, I want you to ask God, what is it, Lord, I'm holding on to too tightly today? Father, I thank you for our time this morning. Lord, I'm grateful for the story of the rich young ruler. Lord, I'm saddened by how this story turned out, and I desperately want to see how the ending would have played out, how the, how the movie would have looked had this guy made a better decision. But Lord, we don't get to see that. Father, in our own lives, I pray that we'd take away the wisdom and the conviction from this message. And Lord, would you make known to us what we need to learn from this encounter? And Lord, in the spirit of Psalm 139, would you search us, O Lord? 
Father, would you test us and know our anxious thoughts? Lord, would you search within us? Lord, would you make known to me any offensive way that is in me? And Lord, would you lead me into ways that are everlasting? Lord, as only you can do, look into each and every one of us and show us, Lord, where we are holding on to things too tight. Demonstrate to us, Lord, where we are offending you by holding on to the things of this world. Lord, we are prone to wander, as Carl sung earlier, and we know this. Convict us, Lord, of what we need to hear from this message. In your name, Lord, we pray. Amen. Guys, would you stand with me for a moment? Um, I need you to know that I have, like, the perfect C.S. Lewis quote to read for our benediction today. I'm a bit of a C.S. Lewis nerd, and my wife mocks me because she thinks I cannot physically get through an opportunity to teach without quoting C.S. Lewis. And so to honor my wife this morning, I've chosen to not quote Mr. Lewis. I know, I felt the same way. Instead, I've got a good quote from a man named John Newton. Here's a four-line poem that speaks to our text as well. He says, Since I have known the Savior's name and what for me he bore, no more I toil for empty fame, my thirst for gold no more. Placed by his hand in this retreat, I make his love my theme and see that all the world calls great is but a waking dream. Love it. Amen. You are dismissed. Please, if you take a cool video at Cracker Barrel, make sure the church gets a copy. And uh, we will see you next Sunday. Enjoy your day.